and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. We have come to the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and as all preachers know, the hardest part of a sermon is the ending. What will you leave the congregation with? How will you speak to them in a way that they will carry the words with them and put them into action in their lives? Hear the ending of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many who take it. The gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorns or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree bears good fruit and the bad tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of God in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, never knew you. Go away from me, you who break. God's law. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise one who built their house on a rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a fool who built their house on sand. The rain fell and the flood came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall. Now when Jesus had finished saying these words, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as their scribes had taught them. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Together we say, thanks be to God. Well, if you had any hope that Jesus would let you down easy at the end of his sermon, I apologize on his behalf. 
We've now read the whole thing. We've read the whole Sermon on the Mount together. And ever since that gracious gift of the Beatitudes at the beginning when Jesus declares that, that God makes right what the world gets wrong, ever since then, Jesus has been piling on moral responsibilities. Be salt and light for others, he says. Get rid of your anger. Get rid of your misplaced desire. Get rid of all your false words. Turn the other cheek. Walk the second mile. Love your enemies. Be holy, Jesus says. Pray and fast and give alms, but do it all without anyone ever noticing, Jesus says. Don't you dare pursue wealth and don't worry about Material possessions, one minute, Jesus says. Don't condemn others and examine your own biases, Jesus says. Do to others what you want others to do to you, Jesus says. It's one great, big, bold invitation to a good and a holy life. It's a challenge to you to rise above the lowest common denominator of our culture's ethical expectations. God didn't create you to be ethically normal. God created you to be different, to be special, for a different quality of life. Now at the end of this sermon, after all this exhortation to a higher plane of ethics, I guess I just wanted a little bit of encouragement from Jesus. I wanted him to say, you can do it, David. I believe in you. I'm right there with you. I've got you on this. We'll do it together. I don't know, maybe Jesus wasn't much of an encourager. But the end of this wonderful and challenging sermon, he basically says, people, I've told you what I expect. Don't screw it up because trust me on this. If you screw it up, there are going to be consequences. The end. Jesus ends with these four warnings. Take caution. Beware. Danger and difficulty lie ahead of you. The first warning he gives is that our life is like a walled city with two different roads that lead up to it. The main road to this city, you've been on it before, right? It's gentle, it's wide, seven lanes, and you know where 285 leads, to destruction. <laughs> Instead, Jesus wants you to take the narrow gate. Climb the road that leads steeply up the side of the city's cliffs through a gate that's only wide enough for one or two to pass. Enter my kingdom through the narrow gate, he says. His second warning to you is that you will meet false teachers all along your way. Lots of folks will try to teach you about God and they will look soft and gentle on the outside. They know exactly what to say to butter you up, to make you come and listen. Don't be shocked when they take a bite out your behind. The only way to know a person is by the fruit that their life actually produces. Our deeds show who we are. What you do when people are looking, but especially when they're not looking, that's what matters. Good trees make good fruit. Jesus' third warning, I think, is the most perplexing. He says that not everyone who speaks my name is really my follower. 
Some of Jesus' disciples are in for a shock when we discover the depth of our own self-deception. We think we're following Jesus, but some of us are in for a surprise. This is George Whitefield, one of the greatest preachers of the gospel in the history of the Western Hemisphere. George Whitefield is almost single-handedly responsible for bringing slavery to Georgia. Lord, Lord, indeed. Finally, Jesus says, your life is a house. You're building it every day, piece by piece, brick by brick, year in, year out. It's the most important thing that you do with your life. It's your home. It's your harbor. It's your shelter. But unless you take Jesus' words and put them into action, even and especially the hard ones, unless you make Jesus' teachings the unshakable substance of your life, it's like you built your house on sand. When the storm comes, every last thing that you worked so hard to build will be washed away. The end. (laughs) Well, thanks, Jesus. It's been so good spending this time with you. I want to ask together this morning, what should we make of all of these warnings at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? They almost feel like they're threats to make us afraid. Is that what Jesus is doing, trying to get our obedience by playing up our fear? Because that's what Christianity has done for a long time, right? Some of you were formed in churches of your childhood by preaching that leaned heavily on fear and on warnings. Hellfire and brimstone preaching, we call it. The devil's out to get you. Judgment day is coming. Where do you want to spend eternity, in heaven or in the fire of hell? Raise your hand if that sounds familiar. It's okay. It's all right. We've been there. One of the most famous sermons in American history is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was preached by Jonathan Edwards, July 8th, 1741, Enfield, Connecticut. It was the first great awakening, and Edwards, who was a staunch Calvinist, was a guest preacher in this congregation. I guess you can only preach a sermon like this when you're the guest preacher. He warned us that we are like spiders dangling over a raging fire by a slender thread. So, So I'm going to channel my inner Jonathan Edwards here. I I want to give a trigger warning for those of you who are uh, 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 going to bring back some memories. But here we go. This is Edwards' sermon in part. The, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. Well, according to eyewitnesses, Edwards could hardly get through the sermon because he was interrupted so often by people moaning and crying out, what do I need to do to be saved? Yeah, fear is a powerful motivator, isn't it? It is. 
And nowhere has fear been employed as powerfully as in Christianity. We invented, we invented over the generations increasingly elaborate myths about hell and damnation that aren't actually in the scriptures. Most scholars would tell you that that the Bible's teachings about hell are allegorical. There are as many passages in the scriptures that say that God will save us all in the end as there are that will be divided in the end between those of us in the nice place and those of us in the hot place. Now, after worship today, we can have a long, lovely conversation about hell if that's what you want to talk about. But faith is not motivated by fear. I'll never believe it, and I'll never teach it. I'm grateful for teachers and mentors and models in my life who showed me that John Calvin was wrong about a lot of things and that people called Calvinists are often more wrong about more things. A self-giving and compassionate and service-oriented faith, which is what the gospel asks of us, can be built on only the ravishing beauty of the stories of God and Jesus and the Spirit in Scripture. Perfect love Cast out fear. That's gospel. We don't need a faith that scares us into obedience. So then what is Jesus up to in these warnings at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? I want to make a distinction this morning between fear and urgency. Between fear and and urgency. I read this as urgency. I think this is Jesus trying to say to you, my beloved, these things matter. How you live your life matters. The choices you make, they matter. They matter for you. They matter for me. They matter for others. They matter in an eternal sense. As deeply grateful as I am for my Presbyterian upbringing, for all of its decency and inorderedness, for all the preachers that I heard who steered away from fire and brimstone and toward wisdom and grace, one thing I missed in the churches of my childhood was a sense of urgency. Some of you all know that part of my background is that I spent a semester at an evangelical seminary in Southern California. And while I struggled deeply with some of the theology that I encountered there, one thing that all my evangelical friends get well is urgency. Now, a lot of them tend to think that that urgency rests on the idea that there are literal, fiery consequences for those of us who get this life wrong. But God doesn't need you to be afraid. With all due respect to Jonathan Edwards, we aren't spiders trembling over a bonfire. But nor does God need us to sit back complacently, congratulating ourselves for having dispensed of eternal damnation and thinking that nothing is at stake in the way that we live our lives. It's your life. It's the only one you're ever going to get. Everything is at stake all of the time. You are unique and marvelous and gifted. The poets get this. Mary Oliver gets the urgency when she says at the end of her beautiful poem, Summer Day, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. 
Frederick Buechner gets the urgency when he says the place that God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Howard Thurman gets the urgency when he says there is something in every one of you that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself. That is the only true guide you will ever have. And if you cannot hear it, you will all of your life spend your days on the ends of strings that somebody else pulls. That's a riff on Jonathan Edwards that I will buy. The urgency for you to become you. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in this last section of the Sermon on the Mount. You matter. Your life matters. Every one of us in this room matters. God created you. God made you beautiful and God made you free. God made you by love and for love. Nothing that God makes should be wasted. You can live a life every day that is caring and compassionate, full of love for others and mercy and peace. The truth is that that life can feel hard. It can feel in this sometimes cruel world like we're swimming upstream, not downstream. It can feel like we're fighting a losing battle some days. It can feel like we're trying to squeeze through a narrow gate. A few weeks ago, when we talked about Jesus calling the disciples, we talked about how he called them out of their lives, which may have been wrapped up in that exploitative business of making fish paste. And I told you then that when Jesus announced to those fishermen that the kingdom of heaven is near, he was inviting them into a new kind of life, a totally different quality of life than the one that they were living. But I also told you then that I don't think they needed much convincing. They knew that the old life, the life under imperial occupation, was demeaning and horrible and unholy. Jesus didn't have to make them afraid in order to follow him. The truth of the world under occupation was fearful enough. Choosing the kingdom of God was a gift a gift for the disciples, a gift for us. It's more like coming home to yourself. When you look around at the world that we share, at the world that's been given to us and the one that we're passing on to our children, what do you see? Do you see a world that's fine? just the way it is? Do you walk out in the world and see justice and equity for all? Do you live in a world that's one in which every child knows they are loved and valued? 
Every person knows we are loved and cared for. Do you walk out into a world in which public servants lead with the well-being of the people in mind? Do we live in a world in which the earth, the ground of our being, is respected and honored? I think the world needs people who are unsatisfied with the world as it is. The world needs people who forsake the pursuit of wealth and seek God's righteousness instead. The world needs people who go out and give to everyone who asks. The world needs people who give up anger and lies and condemnation, who willingly and joyfully go the second mile and who love our enemies every day to the best of our ability. The world urgently needs disciples of Jesus. Every day, Jesus says, you are building a house. This house is your life. And it matters. If you are going to build it, build it on the rock. Let the church say, Amen.